Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are back in the Sermon on the Mount, so Matthew chapter 6 is our text this morning, the first four verses. And as you're turning there, I will say that I would assume all of us have been both the victim and the perpetrator of what is commonly called the silent treatment. You know what that is? That's when you're mad at someone and therefore you refuse to speak to them for some period of time. My mom was very good at this. She could give people the silent treatment for several days, several weeks, maybe even longer than that. And we had a joke in our family that she was not aware of, that there was always at least one member of the family that was enduring that silent treatment. And when that relationship was reconciled, then look out, because someone else was about to get the silent treatment. Sadly, I think I've inherited that same thing from her. I'm not saying it's a valid reaction. It's not the way we ought to do things. I'm just acknowledging that we probably know from both sides of the equation, we have received the silent treatment and we have given it. Some years ago, I was playing golf with someone for the first time. I don't even remember who it was, but they were a coworker of one of our church members who is indeed here this morning, though I won't call him out. Uh, The person that I was playing golf with went back to work the next day and told our member that I was very quiet on the golf course. Our member, who knows me well and has played with me numerous times, responded by saying, what did he shoot? And when this guy told our member what my score was, this guy wisely said, he's not quiet, he was mad. And he was right. I tend to get quiet when I'm mad at someone else or myself. There is another time that we like to be silent, and that is when it concerns our sin. We want to keep these things under wraps, doing our best to make sure no one knows what we've done or are currently doing. And so we don't brag about our mistakes. We don't tell everybody about the poor choices we've made that come with all sorts of consequences or the sins that we are involved in. We are silent about all of these things and hope that others are silent as well. But the opposite is often not true. By that I mean that when we do something good, we want everyone to know about it. We want our good deeds, we want our righteousness, we want our kindness and our generosity to be seen by others. And that way they can praise us and have a higher opinion about who we are and our reputation. And of course, social media has helped us with all of this, where we can subtly or not so suddenly, subtly, tell everybody how wonderful we are. Now, as you know, we finished chapter five of the Sermon on the Mount. We're leaving that behind in one sense, and so we're going forward into chapters six and seven, though I promise you these chapters will not take nearly as long. 
And so you might be tempted to breathe a sigh of relief. Because numerous times in chapter 5, we've talked about how difficult all of these things Jesus said were to listen to and ultimately practice and apply. But I'm going to caution you again against such a response. Because as I've said numerous times, it's about to get even harder. We have spent a long time with six examples flowing out of Jesus' statement that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees if you hope to enter the kingdom of heaven. But this morning, we're going to start to see that we can actually be doing the right things. We can be doing righteous deeds, and yet we can be doing them for the wrong reasons. And if we are doing the right things for the wrong reasons, it doesn't even qualify as righteous deeds. You see, that was the problem with the religious leaders whom Jesus regularly confronted. They were doing the right things. There was no doubt about that. But they were doing those right things for the wrong reasons. They had wrong motives. So we are going to talk this morning about the silent treatment from Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And by that, I do not mean the silent treatment when we are mad at others or hiding our sin, but rather when it comes to our righteous deeds or what we might call practicing our Christian faith and devotion. And this is actually going to be the topic not only today, but for the next several weeks, because we're going to see that verse one is a general statement. And from that general statement, there's going to be three examples that we will look at in the succeeding weeks. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now one of the downsides about going from one chapter to another is that either consciously or subconsciously, we have the idea that because there's a chapter break, we are now looking at a new topic. That is sometimes the case, but it is not always the case, and it is not the case here. You notice in verse 1 the word righteousness. Unless, of course, you have an older version, a very popular version, because the King James Version does not have the word righteousness in verse 1. It says something like, you do not your alms before men. Now the word alms is found in this text. In fact, it's found in all three of the, of the rest of the verses. 2, 3, and 4. And it is translated there in the ESV, something like give to the needy, or in verse 4, simply your giving. But the word in verse 1 is not the word for alms. It is the standard word for righteousness, which ties all of this back to all that we've been discussing over the last few weeks or even months. And so we are going to start this morning by talking about righteous motives. Verse 1 is a general introductory statement to what we are going to be talking about. 
And the three examples that flow from it this morning, give to the needy. And then the second one is going to be our prayer life. And the third is going to be fasting. These three religious devotions are recognized by most world religions. In fact, these are three of the five pillars of Islam. Now, I don't say that in order to get credibility for these uh, devotional practices. I simply state that to show you that not only Christianity, but most world religions, including Judaism, recognize these three religious devotions, giving to the needy, praying, and fasting. So the principle involves, once again, not just doing the right things, but doing so for the right reasons which means we are still talking about heart issues, not just external acts, but the reasons we do those external acts which flow from the heart. All of which of course makes this difficult, right? Because we can't know somebody else's motives. We don't know why someone is doing what they are doing. We just can see what they are doing. Furthermore, we often struggle knowing even our own motives. Because the Bible itself says that our heart can deceive us. So we can think we're doing something for the right reasons, but in reality, we might not be. So the basic principle from which my title comes, the silent treatment, is that we are not to boast nor brag about our giving, our praying, or our fasting. None of these things are wrong, and Jesus is assuming that his disciples, his followers, are going to be involved in all three of these. But we are not to do them for the purpose of being seen by others. Now, that does not mean that we won't be seen by others, but it does mean we don't do it for the purpose of being seen by others. That's not our motive. Now, you might immediately say that this seems to conflict with something we've already talked about. If you remember what we've already looked at in chapter 5, you might immediately go back to that passage that came right after the Beatitudes and think to yourself, but didn't Jesus also say in this very sermon that we are to let our light shine so that others may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven? So, are we to let our light shine... Or are we to do our religious duties in secret? And the answer, of course, is both. One of my favorite commentators and a preacher made the distinction that Jesus is talking about two different things here. He says, in our fear and cowardice, back in chapter 5, we often don't want to speak up and we often don't want to show our faith. And so in those times, he's saying to us, don't let fear hide your faith. Let your light shine. But in chapter 6 here, in times when we, in our vanity, we want to boast and brag about our religious devotions, he says, no, no, you need to be silent because you're not doing it to be seen, but rather to be in secret. And so our good works are to be done in public. But remember, even then, it is the Father who is glorified, not we ourselves. We don't do even these public good works so that others may praise us. But our practice of religious devotion is in private in most cases. Now again, that doesn't rule out corporate or community prayer. Or to put it another way, we are not talking about hiding our devotions. I'm not saying that if you happen to see someone in downtown Knoxville and they are begging from you and you decide you want to give them something, 
that you have to call them into an alley to give them the money so that no one happens to see you give it to them. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. It's not wrong for someone to see you giving or praying or fasting, but it is wrong if you are doing those things for that reason. That is, if that's your motive. And that is a very subtle difference, which is why it's so very hard to evaluate ourselves as to whether we are doing the right things for the right reasons. And by the way, there's no reason why this principle of verse 1 can't be applied to many other areas of service and devotion in the Christian life and church. In other words, it has a much broader application than just these three things, giving, praying, and fasting. And while it may be hard to judge even our own motives, there certainly are some indicators. How often do people in the church get upset because they did something or gave something? and they weren't recognized for it. After a few such instances, their feelings get hurt to the point that they either quit serving or quit giving, or they leave the church altogether. And that kind of reaction, as common as it is, is an indicator that the motives were wrong to begin with. And so if you are upset that proper recognition has never come your way, you may be forgetting the principle laid out here that we are not to do such things for the sight of men. Now all three of these sections have the word reward in them and we will discuss what that means more fully later. But in the first verse it simply says you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. It does not say that there won't be a reward because we're going to see in the next verse that there will be a reward but that reward is merely going to be the praise of men which is what you were doing it for in the first place. So you will receive that, but you will not receive the reward from God. And so the general principle, it's not good enough just to do the right things. We must do the right things for the right reasons. That is, we must have righteous motives. Well, now that we move to the first of these three examples, we move to verse 2. And this one concerns giving. And if I had better eyesight, I might have seen some of you roll your eyes just then. Because here we go, you think. Preachers, that's all they want to talk about is giving. And so here comes another sermon on why I ought to be giving and giving more. Well, I can assure you it's not my favorite topic either. But that's one of the benefits of preaching through a section of Scripture. We must deal with what the text deals with. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. All three of these examples, again, giving, praying, and fasting, are going to have a negative example. That is, this is not how you do it, followed by a positive statement. This is how you do it. And so we are going to start with a negative, and the negative is what I'm calling hypocritical giving. This is found in verse 2. The word hypocrite, which is used in that verse, which was originally used of Greek and Roman actors playing a part. They were in a play, and so they had a costume on and a mask. Just like TV and uh, movie actors in our day, they are playing someone different from who they really are. And so that's what the word hypocrite meant. And while we may not use a costume and a mask today, we do still use the word to refer to someone who is professing one thing and living another. 
In other words, we use the word in the church and others use it outside the church of us in the church to refer to someone who is pretending to be righteous and yet they are hiding in reality an unrighteous life. But here it is a little bit different because again, the scribes and the Pharisees were not hiding sin. They were living a righteous life. They really were and everybody knew that. It was just that their motives were wrong. They're not named here, but surely that is who Jesus is targeting here. And if you go to chapter 23 of Matthew's gospel, you will hear Jesus using that word directly to them at least six times. So that's no doubt who he's referring to here as well. The phrase in the ESV, give to the needy, is once again that word for alms, which is a word that we don't use much today. But alms was a word that referred to a specific kind of giving. That was, it was giving to those who were in need. And this was either done individually on the street, or it could also be done in the synagogues in a more formatted or organized way. You notice it says streets or synagogues there. So by the time of Jesus, they evidently had some sort of system, very much like we do, where you might give your money to the synagogue, and then the religious leaders in that synagogue would have a benevolence ministry where they would divvy up the money among those in the community or in the synagogue who had a need. But of course, you could also do so directly. That is, you could give to someone whenever you wanted to. So once again, this has a wider application. It does apply to giving in the local church, but it certainly applies to your giving on a personal basis, whether that's to some other nonprofit that you are passionate about or whether it is giving to individuals who are in need. Now we know that in scripture, trumpets were used in a variety of settings to announce something big was about to happen. It was used to announce that the troops were ready for battle. It was used to sound the alarm or to signal the attack. You may remember the famous Old Testament story where, where Joshua and the people are marching around the city of Jericho as the priests are, are uh, blowing the trumpets in obedience to God. The Bible also tells us that when Christ returns, he will do so at the sound of a trumpet to announce his coming. And likewise, the Bible tells us that when the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ will rise from their graves. But here in this text, the imagery is used as an imagery. There's no real evidence that anybody literally blew a trumpet to announce that they were about to give something to the needy. The idea here is that they were announcing their gift so that everyone would know it and thus they would receive praise. And as a result, uh, they would get their reward and their reward would be the praise of men. While this is all a fairly easy concept to accept, it's harder to put into practice. Especially if you have been in a position of giving generously or donating a major gift. Instinctively, we want others to know that we've given, right? We want people to know that we're the ones that gave to whatever the issue is. This past week, I was on a, the side of an equation that I've never been on before. That is not, I had an aunt pass away and because my mother is no longer alive, it fell to me and my sisters to, to give something in memory of my aunt. And so of course we could get together and give flowers or we could give to the charity of choice according to the obituary. 
And we chose to do the latter. We chose to give to a charity of, of my aunt's choice. And so I went on the website on behalf of all three of us and I, I made a donation and my sisters paid me. But then of course I began to wonder, are my cousins gonna know that I've done this? You know, I filled out the form and told them what it was for on the, on the website of this charity, but can I trust that they're going to tell my cousins that we've made this contribution? And I wasn't sure about that. And so I texted my cousin to make sure she knew that we'd given, because I didn't want her to think we didn't do anything and thus give us the silent treatment. Or a couple of weeks ago when we were on our way to the beach, we stopped off in Columbia to spend the night and Tracy and I took an evening stroll across the campus of the University of South Carolina. And as we were walking across the campus, we were walking on a brick walkway. But those bricks had names and dates of alumnus from the University of South Carolina. Because evidently, if you gave a certain amount of money, then you could have a brick on that pathway for everyone to forever know that you gave a donation to this particular school. Churches do the same thing all the time. I've seen hymn books, you remember those? Hymn books, where you open up the front cover and there's a sticker in there. This hymn book donated by whoever. So that we know that they gave this generous donation so that we could purchase a hymn book. We've seen the same thing with pews. Some churches have plaques on the end of the pew to tell which family donated the money for this pew. The same thing with stained glass windows. We had that in my previous church. Basically anything you could possibly raise money for in the church, we're willing to put someone's name on it in order to get the donation. Now you might have noticed in the bulletin that we are having a business meeting the last Sunday of this month, a Sunday night service for two reasons, really. We have a deacon ordination, but we also have a business meeting. And the business meeting is because we have a major purchase we need to make on an HVAC system for this very building that you are sitting in. There are eight units on the top of this building, six of which are 30 years old and need to be replaced. So it's going to be a major expense. Now, if you would like to donate the money for that major expense, we will find some way to name the HVAC system after you. <laughs> so that for the rest of the existence of this building, everyone will know who we have to thank for the heat and the air. My point is that we often encourage, even in the church, giving in the very way that Jesus says not to. If you donate, we'll put your name on the side of the building so that everyone will always know that we're here because of you. Now keep in mind, I said earlier, I cannot judge motives. So if you give a large donation, I am not gonna try to discern whether you are a hypocritical giver or not. I'm merely gonna accept the donation. That's up to you to decide whether you're giving it to be seen and praised by men. Righteous motives in the area of giving from the negative side means we don't do it as hypocritical givers. The goal is not for our generosity to be seen by men so that they might praise us. And if that's why we give, you already have your reward. And your reward is you will receive the praise of men. People will say, thank you. 
But that's it. That's your only reward. So let's move now to the positive side found in verses 3 and 4 and discover how we are supposed to give. And of course, you already know this. The answer is we are to be secret givers. We are to give in secret. Verse 3, the easiest way to translate the first two words, I know it doesn't come across that way in the ESV, but trust me, the first two words are, but you. So here's a contrast. We are not to be hypocritical givers like the scribes and the Pharisees who did it to be seen by men, but you, here is how the follower of Christ is supposed to give. And again, all of this assumes that we are going to give. When you give is the way it could be translated. It doesn't say if. Now remember, we've already dealt in chapter 5 about giving. We saw that passage where it said, if, if anyone asks you because they have a need or if anyone wants to borrow money from you, give it to them. Now, of course, we determined that that was not a, an absolute statement that you were to give to anybody, anytime, anyone asked you for any reason. So we certainly said there were other scriptures that put some guidelines on that. But regardless, it is a statement of generosity. We are to be people who give to others since, as Paul says elsewhere, God has richly blessed us, given us more than we need in part so that we might be a blessing to others. Now, I'm not going to sidetrack our sermon this morning by talking about how much you should give or how often. I am simply going to say that if you are not giving at all, or you are simply giving the crumbs that are left over, you are not prioritizing your spiritual life nor the spiritual lives of others. It is a simple truth that ministry takes money. And as a result, as a body, we combine our resources because we believe it's important. I've known people throughout the years who are very generous when there is a specific cause. That is, if you tell them there's a need, they are the first ones to step up. It is because they are passionate about that cause or they want to be seen by others. I don't really know their motives. Sometimes it's just they're confident that the money they give will go to that specific cause and that's why they give it. Sometimes it's they don't trust the leadership uh, to decide what to do with the money. But when there's a specific need, they will step up and give. But these same people are often reluctant to give to the general budget. After all, they don't want to give to pay the light bill. But frankly, the general budget is what pays for the vast majority of ministry and support that is necessary. Other times people will say, well, I don't want my money to go to the building. I want my money to go to missions. Without understanding that again, all of the support that is around here, whether that's in people or buildings, is in essence missions. I know it's not that title, but it is about the mission that we are involved in of proclaiming God's word to make and mature believers, not to mention that 11% of everything that comes into the general budget goes right out of here for the cause of missions to our, uh, to our SBC entities. But that's enough of a side. Let's get back to our text. Secret giving is introduced with another saying. Don't blow the trumpet was the saying for hypocritical giving. But the saying for the secret giving is, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And again, this is not literal. Your left hand never knows what your right hand's doing. Your right hand doesn't know what your left hand's doing. Your hands don't know anything. So this is not literal. 
It is a statement that frankly we still use, though perhaps in a slightly different way. We use the saying now to refer to an organization that is at odds with itself. Different groups or parties within an organization are going after opposing or even contradictory goals. And so we say that organization doesn't know what their left hand or right hand is doing. Hopefully we will not be saying that about the SBC convention after we get through meeting next week. But the phrase is used by Jesus here in a slightly different manner. He's not talking about a dysfunctional organization. Some go so far as to take this to mean that we are to forget what we've given. That is, we ourselves are not even, even to remember. Like the, like the phrase, forgive and forget, this would be similar. It would be give and forget. As opposed to giving with strings attached, we are to remember no more. But while I do think that's a good principle, I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. Rather, I think this is just a memorable way of saying that our giving is to be done in secret rather than announced to anyone or everyone. Now, again, we have to be practical here. It doesn't mean that absolutely no one can know what we give, that you have to be discreet when you came in or when you exit because we've got those offering plates as you enter the doors. And so you have to look around and make sure no one sees that you put anything in the offering plate. That, that's not the point. Or that no one absolutely can know what you give so that not even anybody in our office can keep records of what you give. Now, of course, in recent years, many of us, though not so many now, received a tax deduction for our giving, which means that someone in our office had to keep track of what you were giving so that we could report it to the IRS. And there is nothing wrong with that, though I will say publicly that that person in the office is not me. I do not know what anyone gives. I don't have access to that information from my computer, nor do I want it. I want to be able to minister to people without access to that information so that I do not show partiality. But this statement doesn't prohibit a church from keeping records or from you documenting your giving for tax purposes. Now, I said that there is someone in our office who does know what you give, and again, that's not me, but more importantly, there is someone else who knows what you give. He says, we give in secret, that is the proper manner, but we know that God, who sees all things, sees what we give. A regular truth that we find in the Old Testament is that nothing is hidden from God. There is nowhere you can go to escape his presence. There is nowhere you can go to be removed from his eyesight. Something we often take as a negative because we don't want God seeing our sin or something of that nature. But here it's a positive that our God sees our generous giving even when no one else does. And again, this same principle is applied elsewhere. Remember Jesus' famous cup of cold water thing? If you've given a cup of cold water in my name, I've seen it. It does not go unnoticed by the one who really matters, and that is God. So if we are giving with righteous motives, meaning we are not giving to be seen by men, but we are giving in obedience to God, we can trust that what we do in secret, he sees. And not just that, but he will reward accordingly. Now the word for reward in verse 4 
is actually a different word from the same word that you see reward in your verses in verses two and three. The first couple of times the word's used, it's your basic word for pay or wages. But here it's a more general word, meaning that God is going to give to us. Now some might object, well, if we give or pray or fast because we expect God to give us something in return, isn't that wrong as well? After all, God doesn't owe us anything. We deserve nothing from him, both of which are true. But it is God who is saying that he is going to reward us, and therefore there is nothing wrong with us accepting that reward, whatever it is, and looking forward to it. Though again, that is not our motive. Furthermore, in our culture, I must quickly add, this is not a promise of financial return from God because you gave to others. I have an accounting degree, and I use that accounting degree to pay my way through seminary, but this is not invest $100 in giving to the needy and God's going to give you two, three, or more in return. That is not what this says at all. And that kind of teaching, regardless of what theological label you put on it, once again betrays our motives. So the question then is, what is the reward that God is talking about here? And I hate to end the sermon on a anticlimactic portion. But frankly, God doesn't tell us, does he? He doesn't say what the reward is going to be. It's in the future tense, which implies that the reward is going to be of a heavenly nature, not an earthly one. And if our spiritual life is more important than anything else, as we claim, then it might just be spiritual rewards rather than material which also means that these rewards are going to be eternal rather than temporal. But we should also conclude, of course, that there is a reward in and of itself of being satisfied that we are pleasing the Father, that we are doing what God has called us to do so that we will one day hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joys that have been prepared for you. You know, perhaps one of the reasons we don't like sermons on giving is because we instinctively know that it's about more than giving. I realize that personal finances are just that, they are personal. But what I mean by that is we know that where we spend our money is a clear indicator of our priorities. And when we put it that way, we may not like what we see. Young families spend thousands of dollars regularly on childhood athletics because it's important to them. We spend money to go on vacations because after all, we need a break. We deserve it. We treat ourselves occasionally and splurge on something that we wouldn't normally do because it makes us happy. If you ever watch crime investigations on TV or even just follow the ones that are real, you know that there is a saying that you follow the money. If you're investigating a crime, you follow the money because that's gonna lead a lot of times to the motive behind what the crime was and therefore who did it. Well, I'm simply saying this morning for you and I that we can follow the money we can look at where we spend our money and we can see what our priorities are. 
And so if you profess to be a believer and your spiritual life is important to you, it ought to be evident in your giving. And I am not preaching this because we are in desperate need of money. We are not. I am saying this because we are working our way through this section of scripture and this is what Jesus says. And frankly, Jesus talked about money often because he realized it was not merely a material issue, but it is a spiritual one. And so while you may walk out of here thinking this morning that all I've talked about is giving and how best to do it, I want to remind you that what I've really done is talked about the condition of your heart which is what this whole Sermon on the Mount has been about. After all, Jesus said elsewhere, where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for the opportunity to gather again and to study your word, even on such a topic as this, because again, we realize that uh, the way we spend our money is not just about finances, but it is about priorities. And our spiritual lives and the spiritual lives of others ought to be a priority. That our giving to you and to your kingdom ministries ought to come first because we claim that to be the most important thing. So I pray that you would help us to examine our hearts. That we would look at our motives to see whether we are hypocritical givers, giving to be seen by others. Or whether we are giving in secret knowing that you see all things and trusting that you will not only take care of us, but reward us in the future as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. It's a good song to end on because that's a, that's a good point that we must surrender ourselves first. And then the giving part comes as a, as a function of that. We surrender ourselves to Christ and that includes our finances. And Paul, in writing to the Corinthians in his second letter, is talking about giving. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses uh, from this. But he says, But you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, so that you excel in this act of grace also. He's talking about giving. And he calls it an act of grace. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. You are dismissed.